Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. The purpose of this program is to educate and edify the body of Christ to help them to understand the times in which we're living. Rick, we've got a lot to cover today, so let's get started with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins me. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs. He joins us just about every week. He's an analyst and an author. He has a wide array of experience. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a pleasure. Well, Ken, we follow many stories, and we continually go back and update it and check on them, but it seems like each week there's a brand new story that is just at the front line of the pages as well, and this week is no different. The big story this week, the Pentagon leaks. They have supposedly caught this guy. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened here, Ken? It's an extraordinary story. A young man, Jack Texera, he's 21 years old, a uh, airman first class junior rank. How did this kid get access to such a trove of classified documents, top secret documents and beyond. They have these documents have revealed America's uh, intelligence gathering techniques, the targets. They show that we've been spying on the U.N. secretary general. They show that we have penetrated the Russian intelligence service to be able to discuss debates going on inside uh, Russia on how they report casualties. It's just an amazing story. I can't wrap my hands around why and how the military allowed this kid access to such incredibly sensitive information. Well, Ken, it certainly is concerning that he, this young man, was able to have access to this information. What was in the information that was leaked and why is it important? Well, I mentioned the, the debate inside Russian intelligence, the FSB, uh, and I also mentioned the, the supplies going into Ukraine. But they revealed, for example, that U.S. and Western special forces are operating today inside Ukraine. Now, there are not a lot of them, but they said there are 50 Brits, there are 17 Latvians, 15 French, 14 American special forces and one special forces operator from the Netherlands. Now, you might say that's just a drop in the bucket. But it's incredibly significant, Rick. It means that NATO is now on the front lines fighting Russia. We have not ever had a hot war between NATO and Russia. So this is a first. It's incredibly significant. I can't imagine the Russians just rolling over and letting this kind of blow by them. Uh, it also shows their internal documents that show that the Americans, the U.S. intelligence community, uh, doesn't have much hope for this long heralded Ukrainian offensive to come sometime in spring when the snows melt and the roads dry up. The Americans think the Ukrainians are taking just enormous casualties in Bakhmut in particular, and they don't think that they've got enough air defense missiles to be able to hold off the Russians. That is key intelligence because it tells the Russians now, let's just target those air defense missiles as much as we can. Let's get them to blow off their reserves. And then we can have for the first time ever air superiority. That, by the way, is one of the things I have wondered about since the beginning of this war. Why weren't the Russians using their air force? Well, the answer is the, the uh, Ukrainians had far greater air defenses than anybody knew about. And they were essentially interdicting uh, the, the Russians. They were not allowing them into their airspace. So these are really damaging, damaging revelations. And we have not yet heard the full extent of how Russia is going to respond to them. 
Well, we'll continue to keep an eye on that and the fallout of this uh, Pentagon leak, this situation. But I'd like to go back to what you were talking about there with Russia and Ukraine. And we look at this and can it's hard for me to get a handle on things because you say these reports maybe show that we are very worried about Ukraine. But on the other hand, there are some people saying that 2023 is going to be the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin and his offensive in, in Ukraine. Well, remember what Churchill said, uh, right? The first casualty in war is the truth. So we, we, we are living in a world of disinformation on both sides, the Russian disinformation, American and NATO disinformation. And frankly, I wouldn't believe any of it. Look to the battlefield. Look to what you see actually happening on the battlefield insofar as we get real information. Some sources believe that the Battle of Bakhmut could be the decisive one. That's where the Ukrainians have holed up all winter long. They've been taking enormous casualties. Uh, I mean, I've seen reports, and not from Russia, uh, Western sources saying that the Ukrainians have taken eight to one casualties versus the Russians. It's just hard to believe. They're losing thousands and thousands of their best fighters. There's a report this week that they've tried to reinforce with raw recruits uh, going into Bakhmut. Uh, but this is not good. And the Russians just have such an enormous arsenal and an enormous amount of soldiers to throw at this that I don't see the Ukrainians coming out with a D-Day offensive or some kind of amazing offensive that's going to crush the Russians and lead to Putin's collapse. I don't see it happening. Well, Ken, as we continue to look at this story, we have talked in the past about how Russia is leaning on its allies even more so now because they are isolated from the rest of the world. And one of those is Iran and one of those is China. And they are collaborating to uh, replenish their weapon stocks, aren't they? Well, they are. And what's interesting, uh, Rick, is that the Iranians are now in secret talk with both Russia and China to acquire solid missile propellant, ammonium perchlorate. Uh, this is gets into kind of the arcana of how weapons are built, but there, there are two kinds of ballistic missiles, liquid fuel and solid fuel. The liquid fuel missiles, they, uh, you can have an ICBM, this liquid fuel, but with modern satellites and detection technology, it takes sometimes days to fuel a big liquid fuel rocket. A solid fuel rocket, however, is always fueled and it can be uh, put into position and fired in a matter of minutes. So ammonium perchlorate is the oxidizer used in solid fuel, in solid propellants, and this is a real key ingredient. The international trade in ammonium perchlorate is highly regulated. Uh, it is uh, on a control list, so this is not something that uh, Iran can openly buy on the market. So they're turning to Russia and to China. Interesting that Iran has the capabilities of producing the rockets, whereas Russia has the capability of producing the chemical used in the solid fuel. Well, Ken, we'll move out of Europe and that conflict there. And let's go to Iraq. And there's been some news coming out of Iraq. A man that we know, a cleric, a religious leader and political figure in Iraq is leaving his party. Can you tell us what's going on there? Muqtada al-Sadr is actually a very interesting figure. He's the Zion of the famous al-Sadr uh, Shiite clerical family. He's the remaining son. Uh, he trained in Iran. And remember, he was one of the people who initially was opposing the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the liberation of Iraq in 2003, and then turned around and supported the liberation. He flip-flops all over the place. But his group, 
uh, called the Owners of the Cause. They have been very, very powerful. He's had a powerful militia, which sometimes is pro-American, sometimes anti-American, sometimes pro-Iran, sometimes anti-Iran. Nowadays, they've been accused of corruption. And uh, many of them have been brought to court for corruption. And he, Muqtada Sadr, has always prided himself on being the anti-corruption figure in Iraqi politics. So he said, okay, I'm leaving this movement, disbanding the movement, because I cannot reform it. I consider myself a reformer, but I cannot even reform my own movement, so I'm dissolving it. It's pretty extraordinary if you think about that. Think of an American politician. Think of Donald Trump saying, I'm dis- I, I can't win elections in 2024, so I'm dissolving the Make America Great uh, Again movement. I don't think that's going to happen, but it happened in Iraq. Very interesting. A part of the world I know you have a lot of experience, and we haven't been talking about them as much recently, but we will continue to keep tabs there. Well, right before we go, before we went on the air, we were talking, you and I, Ken, about a situation right here in America. Uh, You asked if you could share with our listeners, and I thought it would be great if you could. So if you could, could you let us know what's going on? I have feared for the past two years that the federal government would launch selective, politically motivated prosecutions against a conservative sheriff. Why? Because the sheriffs, they are elected law enforcement officers. They represent the people. They defend the people's gun rights. They're not appointed police chiefs. These are people who are directly elected. And I've been very concerned that the federal government under Biden would try to weaken the sheriffs. So this past week, a very good friend of mine, uh, the sheriff of Frederick County, Maryland, Chuck Jenkins, he was indicted for what amounts to be a paperwork error with the ATF. And he's going to be stepping down uh, this week. This is a man who stood for gun rights. He stood for people to have a secure place to live. He's gone down to the border. He fights illegal immigration. He's been working with uh, immigration and customs enforcement in a program known as 287G, which essentially authorizes the federal government to remove and deport non-citizens jailed uh, for serious offenses. So he is really on the radar screen of the Biden administration, of the liberals. And I can tell you, uh, after his indictment this Thursday in Baltimore, Maryland, his enemies were dancing in the streets. This is a dangerous time for America. When the federal government goes after the sheriffs, we are all of us uh, in, in danger. Well, Ken, I thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. The sheriffs, they certainly are unique. We have several former sheriffs. Pastor Rich Schmidt was a former sheriff in Milwaukee. Sheriff Jim Hammond here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, was a very good friend of my father's and has been on some of our videos. And uh, it's very concerning to see the way the federal government is doing this. I hope you'll keep us informed of this situation in our future conversations. Uh, Thanks so much, Rick. Uh, God bless and pray for Sheriff Jenkins. You know, Roman 13 deals with submission to government authorities, and the same passage is instructive on the purpose of law enforcement and police work. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for the rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, 3 and 4, police officers are peace officers, represent the rulers mentioned in this passage and extend the authority. Well, we are thankful that, Ken, you brought that up to us, and I look forward to following this story. We are living in a time when right is wrong and wrong is right. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. If you've kept up on the news in Haiti, you probably have a picture of gang-riddled anarchy. Well, it's true of southern Haiti, especially in the capital city of Port-au-Prince. But Eva DeHart at For Haiti With Love says they serve in northern Haiti. And with three significant mountain ranges dividing the country, ministry in the north is not as treacherous as it is in the south. For Haiti conducts a burn clinic, and they can safely fly in supplies. It allows them to remain as a gospel remnant for Haitians in need. But pray for peace in Haiti. And a deaf girl in Uganda went from hidden at home to community in Christ. Grace is deaf, and she often stayed at home. Eventually, a tailor shop employed Grace and her brother, and then she met Rusty, a staff member with Every Child Ministries who connected Grace with ECM's Family Empowerment Program for additional income. Through ECM, Grace also discovered joy in Christ. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, we've reached the portion of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. We talk about news coming out of the Middle East, particularly from Israel, but all over the Middle East. And to do that, we have with us Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, we have several news items coming out of Israel that I'd like to get you to talk about, but we've been following this judicial overhaul story for many months now, and it looks like it's been put on hold, and maybe that hold has actually been extended. Well, at least uh, until the end of May, it looks like, Rick, it will be postponed. And as I've reported before, there were many in the government that wanted it to resume the move towards uh, enacting the legislation right after the Passover recess, which is the end of this month. But the prime minister's basically, at least reports say, has decided to postpone the whole thing until the end of May. A budget has to be passed by law by then, or the country goes to new elections automatically. So obviously, if he doesn't want that, which he doesn't want, Netanyahu, then he will 
focus on getting a budget through. That's quite a process. That takes several weeks of work and different committee hearings and all that sort of thing. And then we'll see at the end of May what the security situation is. As I've said before, if we're at war and the chances of that are still very high, tensions are still extremely high in the region, then of course uh, he wouldn't push that since it's obviously so divisive inside the country. But meanwhile, Rick, there are talks continuing at the president's residence, quiet negotiations between opponents of the legislation and pro proponents, and we'll see how those go. Meanwhile, though, Yair Lapid was the opposition leader, was in New York uh, earlier this week. The Jewish Federations of America were meeting together with a bunch of other groups, and he gave a talk to them, and he said, quote, uh, the Netanyahu government is the most extremist in history, and went on to say some other strong things against it, particularly over this judicial reform legislation, but other things as well. And that prompted one of the participant groups, Amahad, which is an Orthodox group, to write a letter to Lapid uh, condemning those remarks. They said, you're overseas. We're already dealing with high anti-Semitism. And uh, someone who was a former prime minister and the opposition leader to come and make such strong anti-government statements in a foreign country is very harmful. So, you know, the fight goes on, but uh, for the moment, the protests have calmed down and the government's attention will seemingly be elsewhere. Well, the protests have calmed down, like you said, but there are still some protests in uh, that story about Yair Lapid. It is very concerning. It seems like maybe this is not the end of democracy, like some of the opponents of this judicial overhaul are saying, but just an opportunity to get rid of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Is there some truth to that? Oh, that's the main goal of the opponents. I mean, he's a red flag to a bull as far as the left and center are concerned. Uh, very similar. You and I talked about this uh, off of the uh, program last week, but he's very much the uh, President Trump, the Donald Trump of Israel. Uh, there's a Netanyahu syndrome, some call it the same sort of thing that he's just hated by people on the left many people on the left, and uh, Lapid is one of them, apparently, and there's nothing good he can do. But of course, he did put together the most right-wing government in Israel's history. I wouldn't say extremist, because he still controls it. He still has the final say. And even, uh, you know, but again, I think he made a mistake by rushing into these very controversial judicial reforms as the first item on his agenda, just after forming the government. And uh, it uh, just exploded on him. And it's had repercussions throughout the region. The Wall Street Journal reported this week, Rick, that uh, Saudi Arabia is backing away from any sort of a peace deal with Israel that the U.S. had been brokering, somewhat anyway, behind the scenes because of the rioting, because of the rockets, and because of statements made by some of his ministers that are fairly out of uh, the mainstream. So it's having regional effects, and of course all that is having the effect of emboldening Iran and uh, that's not good. Well, David, we'll keep an eye on that political situation, but we'll move on to another controversy that is taking place in Israel right now, and it's that the Orthodox community is claiming that Israel is attacking them unfairly. Yes, they issued a statement on Wednesday, the Greek Orthodox Church did, saying that uh, Israel is trying to impose heavy-handed restrictions. Today, actually, Saturday, which is the annual Holy Fire celebration or um, event, if you will, that takes place in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Greek Orthodox 
patriarch goes into the supposed tomb of Jesus. It's above ground. Uh, goes in there uh, with two unlit candles. Comes out. I've watched this firsthand many times for CBS and others. And uh, comes out with them lit. And then they exchange that fire with each other. It goes throughout the church. They take it outside, and it goes to all the streets around where there's thousands of Orthodox um, Christians gathered usually, and a lot of tourists come and watch it. Well, of course, tensions have been relatively high in recent weeks in Jerusalem, very high. We've had a lot of trouble, as we've been talking about. And so the Israeli police wanted to limit the number coming in this year to 1,800, and they have to have tickets. And then they're going to um, put up, they have put up TV screens around, and that's showing this ceremony. But it's considered the most important ceremony in the Greek Orthodox Church every year. And by the way, their Easter is always a week after the uh, Western Easter, as it were, because they go by the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. Don't want to get too weedy there. But and that's good because it means all of the, the different huge Christian denominations, the Catholics and the Orthodox, etc., can share some of these spaces not at the same time, which is always helpful. But um, they say that uh, attacks have been stepped up against Christians in recent months, and indeed there has been several incidents. Graves, mostly Christian graves, up on Mount Zion were vandalized in January, an Anglican cemetery. I've been there many times. There was a couple other incidents. An American tourist attacked a statue of Jesus in the Church of the Condemnation, and there was a, another incident where uh, two Israelis did some things. But of course, none of that is government-sanctioned or police-sanctioned. Anybody that does such things is, you know, if they can apprehend them arrested, and they have done that. The graves, the desecration up there on January, Jewish groups actually gathered Israeli groups afterwards to help restore uh, the damaged tombs. And there was condemnation from the government, etc. So this is not, as they're saying, uh, a government plot to suppress the Christians or whatever. But uh, Rick, I remember it uh, very well. Whenever we have heightened states of tension between the Muslims and Israel, and Hamas in particular, we always have the Orthodox Christian community tighten up its statements against Israel and step up its uh, sort of solidarity and all this sort of thing. They do that because they are the vast minority amongst the Palestinians, and frankly, for their own sake, to keep their own peace from Hamas that will kill them, frankly. A lot of uh, Muslim fundamentalists anyway would or believe they should. They abash Israel, so that's happening once again. Very interesting background to that story, and that's an interesting context. Well, we've just got a minute or two left here, and you talked about the heightened tensions in the area, and much of that tension is being fueled, and those flames are being fanned by Iran. We've talked about on this program many times, it's a proxy war between Iran and Israel. Several news stories coming out this week that just say that maybe that's even going to another level. Can you talk about that? Well, yes, for one thing, very importantly, we understand now why the IDF has been striking in Syria so often in the past month, month and a half. This has been reported by Reuters. They have several sources that Iran has been using the earthquake that happened in southern Turkey and northern Israel. Supplies, you know, for the people, supposedly, it's been using those flights, stepped up flights to bring in more weapons, to bring in more equipment. They they brought in tanks in, in parts, apparently, that they're assembling. So they're 
really stepping up their involvement in Syria. And that's, of course, probably behind the rocket attacks we had from Syria and then from Lebanon before that last week. And of course, that's all calmed down this week. But a former senior advisor to Netanyahu, Yaakov Amidor, said on Wednesday that he expects war to come with Iran and not peace, that all the evidence is gathering, that that's uh, on the table with America slackening its role. We've had reports that they're exchanging aircraft in the region with uh, lighter aircraft, less offensive, although the U.S. did send a nuclear sub through the Suez Canal into the Persian Gulf last Friday, a week ago Friday, Rick, and they announced that, which they normally don't announce the positions of any of their submarines. So the U.S. is still around, but uh, the Iranians seem to perceive that that support for Israel is weakening and their support with the, uh, for Syria is strengthening and they clearly intend to keep surrounding Israel as much as they can with outside forces as they continue this terror campaign. Their allies there, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, stepped up over the last year. That is expected to continue through the rest of this year as well. Well, Dave, as always, we appreciate your reports. Like we say on this program, the political around the world is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And many of these stories that we are talking about are very similar to what the Bible says is going to take place in the end times. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the program. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Always happy to do it, Rick. God bless. Well, we're going to take a break right now here on Prophecy Today Radio, but there's plenty more to come in the next half hour. We're going to talk to Maurice Hirsch from Palestinian Media Watch. And Rick, I have a brand new partner on the program today, Dr. Mark Kahn, the academic dean at Louisiana Baptist University, talking about our partnership with them to help continue the education of the body of Christ. Edifying and education, that's what we're all about. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as we do this program, we've got an exciting half hour coming up with Maurice Hirsch of Palestinian Media Watch and a new partner on the program, Dr. Mark Kahn, who is with Louisiana Baptist University, the academic dean. We're going to talk to him. Years ago, Dad started a program where he wanted to educate pastors uh, to be able to continue their education and lay people. This is something that's been a dream of dad's and we're carrying it on in the future, aren't we? Sure, Jimmy. I know that was something that he always felt was the best way to get it out, to have a group of men. And I know some of the men that were in that initial group, those pastors, they were near and dear to dad's heart and they are all out there 
teaching Bible prophecy in the correct way. Yes, in today's world, as we have learned, and we will learn from Dr. Mark Kahn, who will be with us, it is so very important to have the correct understanding of Christian theology, what the Bible says, how to interpret it, and that's uh, what we aim to do with Louisiana Baptist University continuing into the future. Well, today on the program, we have Maurice Hirsch with us, Rick, and I know this is something that was very important to you that you wanted to continue with talking about what is happening to the Jewish people, and Maurice Hirsch comes today to give us more information pertaining to that. That's right, Jimmy. Maurice Hirsch joins us from Palestinian Media Watch. He's a frequent contributor to the program, and he's been on before. Maurice, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Maurice, you are with Palestinian Media Watch. If you could, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the mission of your organization? Yeah, so I'll tell you about Palestinian Media Watch first. Palestinian Media Watch was set up uh, almost 30 years ago. The idea is to monitor the messaging that the Palestinian Authority is giving over to the Palestinian people in Arabic to see what they're actually saying. Are they giving over messages of peace or are they giving messages of war and really fighting to destroy Israel? Unfortunately, what we found over the years is that the messaging of the Palestinian Authority, whilst in English they say, all of the right things to really to curry favor with the international community in Arabic to their own people. They are very clear. Israel has no place to exist. Israel should not exist. It should be replaced by the Palestinian Authority taking over all of the land between the river and the sea. You've probably heard the slogans from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. That is a Palestinian Authority slogan. They reject Israel's existence. And so that's the messaging that we see and we followed. I myself uh, moved to Israel just over 25 years ago. I spent 20 years in the IDF, in the, in the Military Advocate General uh, uh, Corps, and then I joined uh, Palestinian Media Watch, where I've been for the last six years. Well, we are so grateful that you are doing what you're doing, and we certainly can look at the situations. The media has narratives, and that's one of the things we do on this program is we like to look behind what may be the mainstream narrative that is being put out, and that is something that Palestinian Media Watch does. You can visit them by going to palwatch.org, and I, I suggest that you do that and make that a regular follow. Well, I have a couple stories that I'd like you to comment on. The first one is this Horrendous attack, the heartbreaking story of these three women from Efrat that were killed. Tell us a little bit about the impact of that terrorist attack in Israel, and then how was that portrayed in the Palestinian media? Yeah, so, so what we have is last Friday, a family, uh, also immigrants from England, were driving from uh, the south, from, the, from Efrat, to the, the city of Tiberias. They were going there for the weekend. It's the, it's the holiday of Passover at the moment, and uh, they were going off to celebrate. The way that they drive there is through the Jordan Valley, and they were driving in two cars, the father and two children in the first car, and then the mother and another two children and their two daughters in the second car, when a terrorist, a Palestinian terrorist, drove by them and then opened fire from a Kalachnikov a, a rifle, spraying the car with bullets. The car lost control, obviously and flipped over. The terrorist appears to have got out of this car and then went up to the three ladies and made sure that he had murdered them. Mm. We're talking about a 17-year-old, a 20-year-old, and, and, and their mother. Really, uh, um, the, what's come out since then is that they were just 
each one of them were just incredible, incredible people. And they were, they were, they were just murdered just because they are Jews wandering around the land of Israel for no other reason. No, no one could have known whether they were settlers. If you're targeting settlers, if you're not targeting settlers, it could have been anyone. Everyone drives on that road. So the really the terrorists had no idea who they were killing, apart from the fact that they were killing Jews. Uh, since then, there's been a tremendous outcry in the country of really of, of, of solidarity with the family. It was particularly harrowing because the two children died first and then were buried. And then two days later, the mother also succumbed to her injuries and, and died. She donated her organs, saving the lives of six people and returning the sight of two other people, giving away her corneas. So really, it's just been a very, very tremendously shaking experience for all of Israel. And really what we've seen is this general condemnation of terrorism um, across the board, international support um, coming in and, and, and condemning these types of attacks. On the other hand, on the Palestinian side, let's start with the fact that what we haven't seen from the Palestinian side, even though we're talking about the brutal murder of three women, and I say women, two children really, no condemnation, no condemnation whatsoever. This is played into because they can't really condemn anything that's done because it's the Palestinian Authority that has incited this tremendous violence. So when, when the Palestinian terrorists go out and murder people, well, they're just doing what their, their leadership has asked them to do. So how could they possibly then go out and condemn anything? So that's been the two sides, really, of the coin. On the one hand, the, the international community and the world really standing by and saying, well, this is unacceptable behavior. And the Palestinians saying, you know, what? we just don't care. It's another three Jews who died. They deserve to die. Imagine the idea of, and here you also have the, the UN, even a UN special rapporteur laying in saying that, well, Israel doesn't have the right to self-defense because these people are settlers and occupiers. That's like, excuse the, excuse the, uh, the comparison. It's like saying that a woman who goes out in a skirt that is too short and is then raped uh, uh, violently and viciously, uh, doesn't have the right to fight back. It's her own fault for wearing a short skirt. Mm. Imagine saying something like that about three people who have just been murdered. And, well, and that's the Palestinian Authority and, and their supporters. Blame the victim. Well, it certainly is a heartbreaking story, and I've seen the pictures of the three ladies, the two young, like you said, children and their mother. Not only is there no condemnation from the Palestinian side, but can you talk to us a little bit about what they call the pay-to-slay program? Basically, these terrorists are going to be rewarded, aren't they? So these terrorists are, are, are exactly that. Once they're arrested by Israel, um, they will go to jail they will have a lengthy court process, as I explained. I was previously in the MAG. I was also the head of the, the prosecution for, for Judah and Samaria. So they'll go through a lengthy court process. They'll be convicted. And all the time, where from the moment they go into prison, they are, will receive a salary from the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority, you don't have to have qualifications to get a job. All you have to do is be a terrorist. You go into an Israeli prison, you start getting a salary, over their lifetime, they will probably earn some several million dollars simply as a reward for murdering a mother and her two children. And that's the way their pay-for-slave policy works. You go into prison, you receive money, even if they're killed in an attempt to arrest them, so their families will see, receive the money in their stead, simply as a reward for the fact that their children took, place, took part in terrorism and murdered Jews, 
We reward them, as the Palestinian Authority says, because they're doing what we told them to do. We sent them to murder, says uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and then repeatedly says, even if I have just one penny left in the coffers of the Palestinian Authority, I will spend it first, not on health for the Palestinians, not on education, not on welfare, but to pay terrorists as a reward for their terrorism. And again, this is coming from the official Palestinian Authority, which is an organization and it's an entity that is funded by nations around the world, by the UN, by our government here in the United States. So this money that our government is giving to the Palestinians, it could be said it's directly going to support these terrorist attacks. Is that true? It is 100%. What we released in Palestinian Media Watch just a few weeks ago was a report which showed a direct correlation between U.S. financial support for the Palestinian Authority and terror. Because the financial report, the uh, support represents and really shows an identification of the U.S. administration with the Palestinian Authority. It's not just money. It's also moral support that they receive from the administration. And we really showed very clearly as the money kept flowing, so terrorism increased. When the money was cut off under the Trump administration, terrorism dropped tremendously. And mm. since it's been reinstated by the Biden administration, terrorism has again spiked tremendously. Now, people will say, but it's only one variable within the general uh, scheme of things. But what we can show is going back 20 years, there's this same correlation between financial support, moral support, political support, and the level of terrorism every year all the way through that whole period. So it's something which, which granted is just one variable, but when there's that same constant result that you receive time after time after time after time, it gives it that much more, uh, uh, I think, force. Well, Maurice, I'd like to move on from that story, and we look at the terrorist aspect of it, and that's something that our listeners need to know, and I know many of them do, but we are continuing to report on these situations as they occur. But I'd like to look at another story that happened last week as well, and it was the so-called storming of the Alaska Mosque. And now we look at that as the Temple Mount area there, and the IDF is charged with keeping peace on the Temple Mount area there and allowing people of all faiths, not only Muslims, but also Jewish people and even Christians to go up there. And the IDF is responsible for protecting them. Well, in the process of doing their duty there, there was a situation where they had to eliminate a security threat on the Temple Mount. I'd just like you to talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened on the Temple Mount, but then again, also how it was portrayed in the Palestinian media and whether or not they were using that to incite violence? So that question, what we have is we're actually now in, in, in parallel to the, the Jewish festivals and in parallel, obviously, to Easter. Um, this period of time, which is really sanctified for, for the three religions. And so during the month of Ramadan, there is a certain practice where Muslims stay um, in the mosque overnight. Now, within that larger Temple Mount complex, there is the mosque, there is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and there not only were people staying in the mosque, but they were using that time in order to arm themselves with rocks, with weapons, with fireworks, in order to attack the Jewish worshippers coming up the next morning. It wasn't an evening spent in prayer and in any type of religious activities. 
It was a night spent, from the point of view of these terrorists, gathering and stockpiling weapons in order to attack the Jews uh, uh, the next morning. When the police saw that this was going on, um, they obviously said, well, we have to intervene. And if we don't come out quietly, then we will have to go in and break it up because you're not only going to endanger your lives, but you're endangering the lives of other people coming up onto the Temple Mount. And so the police were required to go in because the, the terrorists refused to come out quietly and give up their weapons. That was then taken in 10 second, 15 second sound bites and videos of just showing the Israeli police obviously intervening. They show nothing of the context. Um, they obviously don't show the terrorists uh, stockpiling their weapons and preparing themselves to attack anyone. Um, all they show is the law enforcement um, that comes after it. Imagine a, a massive terror attack, and then all you show is a policeman beating someone up at, at, at the end when he's really arresting the terrorist. That's the, so that's what the Palestinian Authority does. It takes these very short videos out of any context and devoid of any context whatsoever, shows them all around, puts it all on social media, inflames really the, the hearts of everyone. Because what you see then is, well, the, the average Muslim will, will see, well, you, here you have the Israeli policeman simply attacking worshippers for no reason whatsoever, ostensibly. And so that and naturally, in, it is designed to, and it naturally inflames religious hatred. And that then drives terrorism all the way through. It's the type of the worst incitement that is possible because you're not just saying, well, you should go out and kill Jews for no reason whatsoever. You're saying that Jews are, are, are attacking and violating um, the sanctity both of Ramadan and of worshippers at the same time. This is really something which, which really does get the population up on their feet. And, and, and I'm sure rightly so. If that was the, the general behavior, then, then this would inflame tensions. And that's exactly what it's designed to do. Prime Minister Netanyahu has basically taken the Jewish visitors out of the equation, and he has restricted Jewish visitors until the end of Ramadan. Now, I, it makes sense to see that he's done that so that there will be no more violence, no more war condemnation. But this is initially just giving in to the terrorist act, isn't it? Unfortunately, it is, yes. Uh, um, it's giving in to terrorism. It's giving in to the violence. It's giving in to this idea that the more violent you become, um, the more control you will have over the Temple Mount, um, and Jews will be excluded from having that ability to, to visit Judaism's holiest site. And that's something which, unfortunately, is the worst message possible as a deterrent against terror to fight terror. But on the other hand, you have to take also into account that it has been and has become relatively common in the last few years that the last 10 days of Ramadan are kept strictly for uh, Muslim worshippers on the Temple Mount. And so this isn't necessarily something which is completely out of the, uh, of the ordinary. It carries on, unfortunately, that, that general pattern of, well, if you become more violent, then uh, um, you, that's the way to keep the Jews from visiting the Temple Mount. So it really is a prize for terrorism, which has just gone on for a few years. And, and every, year the, every year the terrorists learn the more violent they become, the more chance they have of excluding Jews from, uh, from going up onto the Temple Mount. And that's just a, it's just a bad message to give over. I generally agree with you on that. Maurice, thank you so much for taking your time to be on our program. Maurice Hirsch, 
Palestinian Media Watch. I also follow you on Twitter. Can you tell our listeners, if they would like to, how they could follow you on Twitter? Yeah, so at Twitter, it's, it's Palwatch, P-A-L-W-A-T-C-H. And my personal Twitter is Maurice Hirsch, M-A-U-R-I-C-E-H-I-R-S-C-H-4. And that's my personal Twitter. Thank you so much, Maurice, for being on the program. We look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much. Well, Maurice Hirsch gives us information. Palestinian Media Watch, palwatch.org is their website, helping us to understand what is taking place with the settlers in Israel between uh, the Palestinians and the Jewish settlers that live out there in the area that we call Judea and Samaria. The world calls it the West Bank, but we call it Judea and Samaria, the biblical name, as uh, Jewish people are taking up and reclaiming this land that God's given to them, understanding that they won't fully receive all of the land that's been given to them until Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. And by the way, they only have 10% of the land that's been promised to them forever. And we'll continually follow that story. Well, a new broadcast partner that we have on the program today is one that I'm really excited about talking about. Rick and I mentioned it earlier on as we opened up this segment. And on today's program, I want to introduce Dr. Mark Kahn. Dr. Mark Kahn, the academic dean of LBU. Mark is an incredible leader, pastor, prophecy professor, and an overall great guy. Those are words from your president, Dr. Mark Kahn. Welcome to the program. Uh, he is very kind. Great to be here. Yes, Dr. Greg Lyons, and we're going to have him on the program in the future. He's probably in Manila, Philippines. He's over there. He is the new president of Louisiana Baptist University. And Dr. Mark Kahn, you're the academic dean. And the reason that I'm having you on the program today is twofold. One, I want you to tell us about Louisiana Baptist University, what it offers, the partnership that you have with Prophecy Today in the future, and then I have a couple questions I want to ask you. Great. You know, Louisiana Baptist University, we're a, a unique uh, educational institution. Uh, most educational institutions are you know, in the business of education for education, uh, and of course, we use edu education, but the reason that we're in business is for the Great Commission. Mm. Uh, our heartbeat, our goal is not academics. Our goal is the Great Commission, and we do that through our academics. Uh, our academic programs are rigorous, but our heartbeat is to get people onto the fields as they are equipped and trained. You know, Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, said the fields are white. Well, if they were white then, ready for harvest— and that we were to be praying the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest, how much ready are those fields now for harvest? And that's our heartbeat. That's the reason we exist. And, uh, you know, we have uh, several different programs for uh, ministry. We have uh, programs in Bible, counseling, uh, communications and leadership. Uh, uh, we have uh, programs in education. We have a seminary. And we also have partnerships that allow people who are in different language groups to take uh, this coursework in Spanish, uh, in Mandarin Chinese, in, in Korean. So we are trying to do everything that we can to equip the laborers to go out into the fields and because we truly believe that our time is short and that the amount of time that we have needs to be spent focused on 
the task that Jesus laid before us. I love that. You know, a lot of people always ask us, how do you, you know, you know, in, in our program, Dr. Khan, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We understand God's word. So by then when we read the news, and I like what you just said, we understand the times in which we're living. That's what helps us. We don't interpret our Bible by the news. We interpret the news from an understanding of God's word. And as we do this, it's so very important. And who can do this, Dr. Khan? When, when when we talk about this, I mean, I know that a lot of people say, you know, well, I'm not a I'm not a uh, a pastor, I'm not a professor, I'm not uh, I don't have degrees. Who is who who should be able to do all of this? You know, every single person needs to continue to study. You know, what did Paul admonish Timothy mm. that he needed to study to show himself approved? We each as servants of the Most High God, those who have accepted His gracious gift of salvation. We need to be availing ourselves of the opportunities to learn and to study His Word. And I I fear that perhaps, particularly in the Western Church, but perhaps in the church culture at large, uh, we have fallen for an anemic form of biblical knowledge. Mm. It's almost like a a diet of spiritual cotton candy. (laughs) It's marvelous, and it tastes really good, But everyone understands that if you continue this type of a diet, it is going to end badly for you. Mm -hmm. And so our our people need to be better equipped, better trained. And that is exactly what many of the courses are designed to do at Louisiana Baptist University. You don't have to be a a called pastor, a vocational minister, a missionary, an evangelist. Anyone who desires a greater understanding of God's Word and the times in which we live we have coursework for them from uh, certificate programs all the way through uh, the Doctor of Ministry and the PhD. Uh, we can administer the coursework that will help them be better equipped for the times we're living in. Again, I'm speaking to Dr. Mark Kahn, the academic dean at Louisiana Baptist University. Dr. Kahn, give us the website and the phone number real quick. Wonderful. Yes, it's easy to remember. It's lbu.edu, uh, lbu.edu. It's Louisiana Baptist University. Uh, And our uh, telephone number is 318-686-2360. That's 318-686-2360. And if you go to lbu.edu, you scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, you can see our physical address, mailing address, and that telephone number there. Yes. And uh, the partnership that we have with you, we help teach some classes in eschatology, uh, we want to uh, help the body of Christ again to move forward, to continue to learn. You're never too old to start this process, as I tell folks all the time. We have that responsibility as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the word of God is is, is proven it's given to us for all areas of life, for correct teaching, yes. for uh, doctrine, for all the things that we need. And, and uh, Dr. Khan, you're a prophecy teacher as well. You've taught Bible prophecy. You understand it. You're on the same page with us. Where do you see the church and the body of Christ today in the times in which we're living? You know, that's a good question. Uh, And, of course, it's one that many people are asking, I think, perhaps underscores the need for 
prophecy teachers right now, mm. because there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions. I think that the Church is entering into a time period that is going to be unlike any other. Mm. Uh, as we listened to the words of Jesus, his disciples began to ask him a series of questions at the beginning of Matthew 24. It's paralleled in Luke 21. And they were just inquiring, you know, how do we understand the times in which we are living right now? Of course, that was 2,000 years ago, and the time of your coming. And Jesus, he answered them. He didn't answer them in what was his typical fashion through the use of parables. Uh, He laid out clearly and plainly some of the things, and one of the things that he said is that there are going to be specific signs that are going to be occurring, and whenever these are occurring, you need to recognize that these are just the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the birth Mm. pains. I sense that the Church right now is in those birth pains. How far along we are, uh, it's impossible to know. Uh, Just like in the delivery of a child, it's impossible to know exactly where you are precisely the delivery of the child. You, You can't know. But you can recognize the signs and understand that you're getting closer. And the harder those birth pains, the contractions are, the more frequent they are, you recognize the birth is getting closer. As we look at the world, we recognize the birth pains are getting more intense. Mm. And the signs are getting closer. Now, we don't know when it's coming, but we recognize that the events that Jesus foretold are getting closer now than they were. Dr. Mark Kahn, academic dean at Louisiana Baptist University. Dr. Khan, thank you. I'm going to have you back because you have an understanding of Bible prophecy, which is what this program is about, examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I'd love to have you back in the future. We'll have you back on again. And uh, looking forward to our partnership and encouraging our listeners to take advantage of this great opportunity to join in the 50th anniversary with Louisiana Baptist University, and continue their learning. By the way, not only is that benefit, uh, will benefit them in their everyday life, but there are eternal rewards for studying God's Word, and that's what we want to encourage our folks to do. Thanks, Dr. Khan, for joining with us today. We look forward to the next time. It's my privilege. Look forward to it as well. Folks, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series, Dr. Jimmy D. Young speaking about that future kingdom right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and along with Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And uh, let me just remind you this weekend, I'll be in Peoria, Illinois at El Vista Baptist Church. Would love to have you come and visit with us as we're there in that area. Rick, one of the things that we do at Prophecy Today, and we've done this, you and I and Dad, we're continuing on his ministry, his passion for Bible prophecy. He taught us. We're teaching others. I love that. But we also have on our website a way that people can get our thoughts on Bible prophecy in the scriptures. We sure do, Jimmy. We have a way where you can come. You could sign up for our devotions. It's on the front page of our website at prophecytoday.com. Just scroll down a little bit. You'll see it there. But we just wanted to make sure that our listeners knew about this. For one, it's a way for us to keep in touch with you. And we'll send you every day. We start in Genesis, and we go all the way through the book of Revelation. We'll send you every day a different devotion. And this is just going through Scripture 
seeing what the Bible has to say specifically about Bible prophecy. It's an excellent resource for students of Bible prophecy, Jimmy. Well, Rick, on today's program, we're going to continue our study. It's a very important study on the coming kingdom. We will look at the events that lead up to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth and the setting up of his kingdom. The Jews were promised this kingdom through King David some 3,000 years ago when the Lord promised the second king of Israel a future kingdom. That promise is called the Davidic Covenant. We'll begin our study today by looking at that covenant. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And so he's committing to King David, I'm going to put up a permanent place of worship. And that, as we know, would be the city of Jerusalem. He talks about the first installment of this promise being taken care of by his son Solomon. Look here in verse 12. And when the day, thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which will proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, referring to Solomon, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's going to be a kingdom forever that will come from the bowels of King David through his son Solomon, who fulfills the first installment of it. Look at verse 16. And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. That word is olam, the word, same word with the name of God, el olam. And the words of names of God describe the character of God, el olam, the eternality of God. You take olam away from his name, you put it with something else, and it means the exact same thing. I'm going to put up a kingdom, this kingdom will be forever. Not just through the thousand-year millennial kingdom, but in eternity future, the kingdom will be forever and ever and ever. Over in Jeremiah chapter 33, the Lord says, look, if you can do away with the day and the night, then I can break my promise to King David for establishing a kingdom. This is the promise of a kingdom to King David, who was king of the Jews, the leader of the Jewish people, a promise to the Jewish people that this would be the case, a promise that it would happen. In fact, Jesus Christ, in the, the procedure of trying to uh, keep that promise, comes and presents himself as the king of kings. That's what the Ma book of Matthew is about. He comes to present himself as king of kings. Go to Matthew chapter 3 just a moment. Jesus Christ goes down to meet with his cousin to be baptized there in the Jordan River. In chapter 3, we see the record of that activity taking place. But notice the first two verses. I want to show you something. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is standing right there. And he's going to baptize him. And he makes the statement, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ comes now because the promise was made to King David. He makes a presentation to the Jewish people. This kingdom is to be for the Jewish people. He makes a presentation to give them that kingdom. Chapter 4, after he's baptized, he has, of course, his 40 days in the wilderness. And then he goes to the Galilee. 
When he gets to the Galilee, he's going to start his three and a half years of ministry. Look what his ministry would be. Verse 17, chapter 4 of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he's offering a legitimate offer, a presentation of the kingdom to the Jewish people. As I see, when you look at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, what are you talking about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. I believe it's a commentary that Jesus is giving the Jewish people there for the purpose of telling them what it's going to be like in the kingdom. I don't believe that's a direct order for us to live and abide by the Sermon on the Mount activities. A spiritual application would be, of course, very appropriate for us to live that way. But technically interpreted, that is a commentary on how the Jewish people, listen, the Jewish people, there are no Christians at this point in time. The Jewish people are to live in the kingdom. And so he's making a legitimate presentation of his kingdom to them. He's preaching it throughout the Galilee. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. And Jesus went about the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm here to establish the kingdom. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, he said, my cousin John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman, could have been the fulfillment of Elijah appearing. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah will come. And he says John the Baptist could have fulfilled that activity. He could have been the fulfillment of it. But because they rejected not only John the Baptist, but Jesus Christ, the kingdom was not set up. So it was postponed. He did not take the kingdom from the Jewish people. He simply postponed it. Do you remember when they went to Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 6? He gets there in Caesarea Philippi. The transfiguration is going to take place in about six days. He's talking to them about, well, who do you say that I am? Who would you say that I am? And Peter steps forward. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, he commended him for that. But then Jesus said something that just blew old Peter and all the rest of them away. He said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. But I'll raise from the dead. What did Peter say? Not so, Lord. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. This is my plan now. Because the Jewish people had rejected him. Do you remember John chapter 6? He feeds 5,000. After the feeding of the 5,000 men, plus the women, plus the children, probably 20,000 people, giving them all they could eat of fish sandwiches. They took up 12 baskets full. An unbelievable miracle. And what did Jesus do? Read John chapter 6. He went and hide to hide in the slopes of the mountains. Why? Because they, he was afraid they would come and make him king. He had already postponed the kingdom because of their unbelief. That does not negate the promise. David's promise, the Davidic covenant, is an absolute, unconditional promise that must be fulfilled. And it is only fulfilled here in the kingdom on the earth because the Jews rejected it. A postponement of the kingdom. Let me show you the kingdom procedure. The kingdom procedure. 
Do, do you remember I said that the rapture is the next thing that happens and then the return of Jesus Christ? And during this seven-year period of time, 16 chapters of detailed information give us what is going to be the judgment upon the face of the earth. At the rapture of the church in the heavens, we're married to Jesus Christ, and we have a seven-year celebration as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But on the earth, what is going to be taking place is total judgment. Let me walk through 16 chapters with you. If you want to take notes, grab your pen and put on your safety belts or seat belt, because I'm going to go. Here in chapter 4, we see the rapture of the church taking place. Chapter 4, John is in the throne room in the heavenlies. There he sees God the Father seated on the throne, not Jesus Christ. Jesus is his right hand. God the Father on the throne. That's chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. He has a sealed book in his hand. Somebody says, who's going to open the sealed book? Finally, one of the elders said, what about Jesus? He was pure, perfect, without sin. And he is going to take the sealed book out of the Father's hand, which will contain all 21 judgments that unfold in this seven-year period of time. In chapter 6, we see the beginning of three sets of judgments. There are seven sealed judgments. In chapter 6, there are seven trumpet judgments. In chapters 8, 9, and 11, and there are seven vile judgments. In chapter 16 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, we see the seven sealed judgments unfold. Chapter 6 has six of them. Chapter 8, verse 1 has the last one, which is silence in the heavens for the space of half an hour, which I believe is talking about the reality in the heavenlies of the judgment upon the earth and what's yet to come. We've only had six of the judgments, now seven trumpet judgments, seven vile judgments. At the same time these judgments are unfolding on the earth, there are going to be two witnesses, Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, and these two witnesses are going to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom up to the rapture of the church. We're preaching the gospel of grace. The gospel of the kingdom is Jesus is the Savior and he is coming. Get saved. And that gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached by these two witnesses for 1,260 days, three and a half years. Their first results will be 144,000 male virgin Jews that come to know Christ. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8. They will go forth and for a seven-year period of time be protected from any harm. Chapter 7, verse 3. And preach the gospel of the kingdom until all the world hears the gospel of the kingdom and has an opportunity to receive Christ. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. At the end of the, seven, uh, the first three and a half years in the seven-year period of time, these two witnesses will be killed, lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, which time they miraculously were raised from the dead. Also, at the end of the seven-year, uh, excuse me, the first half of the seven-year period, at the midway point, there's going to be a battle in the heavenlies. A battle in the heavenlies between Michael, the archangel, and he is commander-in-chief of the good angels, and Satan, that old dragon, the devil himself. This is chapter 12, verses 7 to 17. And Satan and all of his evil angels are thrown out of heaven down to the earth. Verses 13 and 17 of the book of Revelation chapter 12. He comes intensifying his persecution against the Jewish people to wipe out the Jews. Thus then God cannot fulfill that Davidic covenant and give them a kingdom. And at that point, Satan takes over. But God's going to intercede. He'll send Michael to protect the Jews in the last three and a half years. In that time, the judgments intensify during that period of time. There will be seven trumpet judgments. One third of the ocean turns to blood. All the grass and the trees and the shrubs on the earth are burned up. One third of the fish in the seas die. This is only the beginning of the ecological judgment on the face of the earth. Because this period of time is for bringing the earth 
and earth dwellers under submission so the kingdom can be given to him. The seven trumpet judgments happen. Out of that seventh trumpet judgment come the seven vile judgments. Now all the ocean turns to blood. All the fish in the sea die. The sun scorches men so they blaspheme God. They're in such pain. They gnaw on their tongue in pain. Trying to get rid of the pain but yet they do not repent. There in chapter 12, uh, chapter 16 and verse 12, the kings of the east make their way to come in. And then Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet gather all the armies of the world. They go to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ comes down, destroys Babylon in that last three and a half years. It's been in the operation, an economic power base, and it is destroyed. And then Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. That is the return of Christ. By the way, every one of these things have to happen. Before the kingdom. Thus, we are not in the kingdom. The kingdom in operation today. Not according to the scriptures. As I said, according to the scriptures, we are not now in the kingdom period. King David received the promise of the kingdom in the Davidic covenant. Jesus presented the offer of the kingdom to the Jewish people some 2,000 years ago, and they rejected the offer. So Jesus postponed his kingdom. Today we learned that the procedure for the setting up of the kingdom here on the earth is the rapture and following the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. At that time, God the Father will give Jesus Christ, His Son, a kingdom, a dominion forever. In fact, we'll see how this all plays out on next week's program. Please join us at that time. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. If you've kept up on the news in Haiti, you probably have a picture of gang-riddled anarchy. Well, it's true of southern Haiti, especially in the capital city of Port-au-Prince. But Eva DeHart at For Haiti With Love says they serve in northern Haiti. And with three significant mountain ranges dividing the country, ministry in the north is not as treacherous as it is in the south. For Haiti conducts a burn clinic, and they can safely fly in supplies. It allows them to remain as a gospel remnant for Haitians in need. But pray for peace in Haiti. And a deaf girl in Uganda went from hidden at home to community in Christ. Grace is deaf, and she often stayed at home. Eventually, a tailor shop employed Grace and her brother, and then she met Rusty, a staff member with Every Child Ministries who connected Grace with ECM's Family Empowerment Program for additional income. Through ECM, Grace also discovered joy in Christ. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. 
This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we've been taught over the years how to understand the correct way, the proper hermeneutics for interpreting scripture, reading it, realizing that God has a plan from Genesis to Revelation, that there's not a bunch of stories that have been thrown together, but they all connect the dots. They're all connected all through scripture, and it's all there for a specific purpose. It's theology, it's Christian theology, and understanding it correctly really does help us as we understand the times in which we're living. That hope that is within us is about future events that are going to take place first for the body of Christ, the rapture of the church, and then what's going to take place after that. So understanding that really does help us to understand times in which we're living. After today's program, as we listen to it, Rick, what were some of your thoughts on today's program? Well, Jimmy, just to go back on what you said there, and you're right, we look at these things from a prophetic lens. Now, we started not by reading the newspaper, Jimmy, right? But we started by reading the Bible, by studying what God put in his word to share Bible prophecy with us, to give us the gift so we know what's going to take place in the future. With that lens, we then go and we read the newspaper and we start to look at it and we say, look at all these things that are taking place right now uh, and how they could fit into the end time scenario laid out forth in scripture. We started with Ken Timmerman today when we were talking to Ken Timmerman. Of course, we get an update on what is taking place in Russia right now. And, you know, Jimmy, the the players that are on the world scene right now, when you look at the world and you see uh, the top headlines, you've got Russia, you've got China, you've got Iran. And these countries, these nations, the Bible says, have a role to play in the end times. Yes. We learned that from Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, Psalm 83. We've talked about it many times on this program. And I agree with you as we look at those stories. We first have in our mind what God's Word says. By seeing what world leaders are doing, God uses world leaders to accomplish His will. We understand that. That's Revelation chapter 17. We understand that God uses world leaders to accomplish His will, good and bad. And I think as we watched these nations over the last years, two years, uh, as Ukraine was invaded by Russia, China is now involved, becoming a major peace player. These are all nations that are talked about in Bible prophecy. When we look at uh, a systematic thought process or a systematic plan by what we would, I guess the only name we could give it would be anti-God or anti-Christian, anti-Christ. There is a philosophy permeating the world today, governments, thought process, politicians. We are at war. We do want to put our arms around people because we have that message that God gave to us as, and it's God's plan of redemption for mankind the belief that his son was sent to this earth to die, to be buried, to raise again through his death, burial, and resurrection. We offer everyone the greatest gift of eternal life. But 
Sometimes as we are doing this, we're coming under attack by people that want to really to stop that message getting out. And that's Satan, his subtle strategy from the very beginning until that time when he will be ultimately destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire and then into eternity where he will be judged eternally and all of those that follow him. Jimmy, we continued on with Dave Dolan today, and it was very interesting to hear this story, the uh, the Greek Orthodox Easter coming up this weekend, and uh, the, uh, the fact that there is controversy surrounding the Israeli, the Jewish authorities there in that region, limiting the amount of people that could uh, attend that event. And Jimmy, it just re- brings to mind, you and I have spent a lot of time in the old city. When you see the Muslims and the Christians and the Jewish people, and you look at all that focus that is on that one area of the world, that city, and you look at it, and you know that it is going to be a cup of trembling, a burden in some stone, as it says in the scripture. You know that it is, Jimmy, going to be the center of controversy in the end times, isn't it? It sure is. You know, when you're there, uh, we believe that you know, where the first kingdom was established in the Garden of Eden, we do believe that that area was the center of the Garden of Eden, the Temple Mount. But uh, Satan, again, his subtle strategy is to really to try to convince people that they are doing the right thing. And this holy fire story of a, a group of people, a false religion led by a false teacher, a false teaching. John warned us about it in the last words when he delivered uh, the message to the seven churches of how we needed to be aware of false religions coming in. And I think we need to just make sure that when we are following that, again, it's a it's a good principle for understanding what God's Word says, that anything outside of God's Word is really added on to and something that Satan has put into place to lead people astray. All of these people that think that they're doing the right thing, but they're doing the wrong thing. And finally, Jimmy, I mean, all this is prefaced on the fact that we need to understand the word. We're looking at politics because we're looking for signs of, of the soon return of Jesus Christ. But uh, we we need to know the word. And it was great conversation with Dr. Mark Kahn and to just emphasize the importance of knowing scripture. Yes. So many people today don't have a complete idea of how scripture works. You know, the more you read the word of God, the more you fall in love with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. But until you read it and understand it, it is just something that we've really put on the coffee table. We have it uh, on the mantle. But I am encouraging our folks today to be educated about what God's word says and not just part of it, but all of it as we look at what's taking place in the world in the future. And that's what our purpose is, as I stated at the beginning of the program, to edify and educate the body of Christ. Rick, thanks so much for joining with me today on the program, for doing the hard work, uh, for following all of these stories. And I look forward to being with you again next week. My pleasure, Jimmy. I look forward to next week as well. Folks, everything that we have seen, we talk about an imminent rapture, an event that could happen at any moment. Are you prepared? Are those around you prepared? Do they even know that the only way to have a restored relationship with God is through his son, Jesus Christ? Until next week, let's keep following what's happening in the world, seeing how close that we're getting. And really, when you look at it, the rapture of the church could happen in the next moment. Let's keep looking up 
Until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.